0: You know, when you think and you look out at the absolute futility of life, at least from uh, Solomon's perspective in Ecclesiastes, kind of the vanity, the the Hebrew word there is hevel, just the kind of the vapor that happens and we get so caught up in things and yet we're brought here on Sunday morning. I remember reading an article not long ago by one of the great Yankee uh, pitchers, uh, World Series winner and all that, and he was talking about... Some people are like, ah, I do not really need to go to church on Sunday. I mean, you know, I can kind of, I don't really need to go to church. And he made a comment that I thought was really profound. And he said, you know, I need to go each week and I just need somebody to preach to me. I just need somebody to preach to me, to, to remind me, to recalibrate me, to get me out of this scene realm where I get so caught up in the, well, in the non-transcendent aspects of life. I need somebody just to remind me it is in Christ alone. It's authority and power and we're, we're going to look at that a little bit more deeply. You ready for this? Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for the privilege to meet. Uh, I've thought about it many times, how many places in the world uh, there's there's risk in even gathering together as a community and lifting You up and corporately worshiping You and recognizing Your sovereignty. and thinking through Your Word in deep ways, Lord, uh, there's risk in that, not a whole lot of risk for us, although it seems to be changing somewhat in our culture and our time. But Lord, uh, if we're gonna gather here and take our time and come together, Lord, we are in desperate need of the power of Your Spirit to give us insight, to open our ears and to open blind eyes that we can see and move along. Lord, help us recognize we're on a journey. We don't just make a decision and now we're going to heaven and not going to hell. Lord, we are on an ever-increasing journey of maturation, becoming like you. Lord, we need your help. Help us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, last week I told you I was going to uh, tell you a little story. I thought it was one of the most ridiculous stories that I had ever seen or heard or thought about. It was them questioning Jesus' authority to be in the temple, and which was just the height of absurdity. I mean, the cross is absurd. Talk about a miscarriage of justice. The cross was an absurdity in so many different ways. If you describe a miscarriage of justice as being the innocent bearing the weight of the guilty, that's a miscarriage. Or somebody going scot-free, that's a miscarriage of justice. Well, in that sense, the cross was a miscarriage of justice. This too, this incident with Jesus teaching in and around the temple was also a miscarriage of justice. And by that, last week we started to unpack and will over even the coming weeks, the authority, the claims Jesus made about himself, the claims the apostle Paul made about him, the claims Peter made about him, and then in weeks to come, what is the proof of that? Why why would we even believe that? And how can we know that? How can we know that? So if you have your Bibles, go back to Luke, and we snuck finally into Luke chapter 20. Some people, now if, you, if you're if you a type A personality and you're like, I just have to get a task accomplished and you think, okay, we're going to go through the Gospel of Luke, when are we going to get through this, when are we going to get through this because I've got other things to do, then you will have been lost a long time ago because remember in many ways the scripture, anywhere we look, is just a launching point for really going all over the Bible. You realize how what an integrated whole the Bible really is the deeper you get into it. So uh, that's what we do. Sometimes we camp out somewhere for three or four weeks, and that's okay because we're looking at something more systemic. We're trying to gather information to say, what is going on here, rather than just reading the story. Now, there's nothing wrong with reading through your Bible. In fact, many of you have taken on the task of maybe trying to read through your Bible in a year, and those are wonderful endeavors. But it's time to hear on Sundays, we stop and we smell the roses to some degree, we really go a little bit deeper. What's happening in the subtext here? And I think that's what we're looking at. So, Luke chapter 20, first eight verses. I'm going to reread it. I'm going to set up this ridiculous story again, and then we're going to look a little bit more deeply. Remember, I gave you homework last week. Um, so raise your hand if you actually did the homework. <laughs> uh huh. Uh huh. Let's just stop and let's have some confession. Father, we, we're so sorry that. We don't pay any attention to what our what our pastors tell us and we no. That was it. Okay, Luke chapter 20 verse 1. Are you ready? On on one of the days, while Jesus, he was teaching the people in the temple, in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests, the scribes and the elders confronted him. And they spoke and they said to him, "Tell us by what authority you are doing these things or who is the one that gave you this authority. We looked at this last week. This is the the finite looking at the infinite and questioning his authority. It's a little bit like what happened right after Peter had made this radical proclamation, thou art Christ, son of the living God in Caesarea Philippi. And then the very next thing we get that Peter took Jesus aside and sharply rebuked him. That was also absurd. That is... That is absurd that we would look at our Creator because Colossians, very clear, everything was created by Him, for Him, through Him. Everything holds together in Christ. Christ is the epicenter of everything that we read in this book, He is everything points to the ministry of Jesus, the person of Jesus. And now we find again a situation where the religious leaders, the scribes, the various folks who were in and around the temple who felt that they had been tasked with the Well, the curation of any message that goes out here, I guess, in some senses are now saying, who gave you this authority? Verse 3 said, And Jesus called down the angels from heaven and smote them with a mighty smiting. That is not what he did. That's what he maybe could, certainly could have done. Same thing, you know, with cross. I mean, he could have called down a myriad of angels and in that moment extricated himself from the unblemished lamb journey that he was on, that he is trying to describe to his followers that he is on. No, Jesus answered and said, I will also ask you a question and you tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men and they reasoned among themselves saying, well, if we say from heaven, he will say, why didn't you believe him? If we say from men, all the people will stone us to death because they are convinced that John, was a prophet, so they answered, and they didn't know where it, that they answered that they didn't know where it came from. And Jesus said, "Nor will I tell you by what authority, what authority I do these things." Now, Jesus was really, in my view, trying to challenge their own assumptions about their own authority. Their authority had been given by men and not by God. And uh, we looked at that a little last week. Go back and watch last week if you'd like. So now let's move on. We looked at this final claim. Uh, Jesus made many claims, but This final claim revolving around this term, son of man. It's a paraphrastic term, meaning it's just humanity in one way, uh, but it's an interesting term that he uses, and he's deriving that from Daniel, but he's also... I want to look at that a little bit more closely before we jump in, but if you'll remember, John 3, it's where we closed last week, verse 13, Jesus makes the comment that no one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, the son of man." Now, what did that mean? Now, in many cases, most people will think the term son of man, and it certainly includes this, was giving a picture of Jesus' humanity. In other words, he was born of a woman. Now, uh, Isaiah had seen that clearly. She would be uh, an Alma, a young virgin or a young woman that we see in uh, Isaiah chapter 7. Clearly, Jesus took on human flesh, and in that sense, he was a son of man. But this means much more than at face value. Jesus referred to himself referentially over 80 times as it, well, at least it described in the New Testament. Sometimes they're overlapping, but over 80 times he referred to himself, New Testament, or was referred to. Stephen at the stoning in Acts 7 as well. See, he looks up and sees, he says right before he dies being stoned, the first martyr, and he sees the Son of Man at the right hand of God. Uh, we see that a number of times in the New Testament. Over 80 times, Son of Man. Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man over and over and over. And was that a, a claim that this Son of Man, yes, I was born of woman? I, well, yes. Yes, that includes that, but I think there's something different. Now, we often wouldn't think of Son of Man, we would also more think of maybe the Son of God. We talk about Jesus as the Son of God, and obviously the New Testament refers to the Son of God very often. But now, in a very reciprocal uh, juxtaposition here, which is interesting, it's fascinating if we look that actually the claim to be the Son of Man was more a claim, certainly in this context, of authority than it was of humanity, and why? Well, we'll look at that in, that in a minute in Daniel chapter 7. And actually, son of God, at first you may think, well, that's his claim to deity, but also in the Bible, it refers to us as sons or children of God. I think about Ephesians 1. We're adopted, we become the children of God. Uh, even Paul, in his uh, conversation with the Areopagus in, at Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, he talks about we're all kind of the children of God. 1 John chapter 3 talks about us being the children of God. In fact, as I was up here, I said, I probably just need to read this. I don't think we have it up on the screen, but here, 1 John chapter 3 says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God? Well, and such we are. For this reason, the world doesn't know us because it didn't know Him. Verse 2 says, "...beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet. what We shall be, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him just as He is." Again, children of God. You see that in Galatians, you said it over and over, we're children of God, we're adopted, we're the sons and daughters of God through Christ, we're part of the family of God. Again, and that's a beautiful picture. Uh, So when Jesus talks about being a son of God, uh, certainly he was the son of God in his conversation with Nicodemus in John 3, but it's not quite at face value. What I want you to see is this is not a claim to humanity as much as it is a claim to authority. And this is where we have to prophetically go back and see what Daniel, who had been taken captive by the Babylonians and was now living in Babylon, he has this really strange vision about these four beasts coming up and trying to devour, coming out of of the sea of chaos and and all these pictures he has. And then he gets what we're about to read. Uh, All of a sudden there's a shift and he looks into the kind of the throne room of God. He talks about thrones being set up And here's what he describes. Now, if you understand this, then you'll understand when Jesus makes a claim to be the son of man, he's not just claiming to be, well, the son of Mary and in some ways Joseph because he raised him, but not genetically here, but, but what we get is we get a picture of Jesus' claim to authority. What authority have you been given that you can be here in the temple and be teaching like this? You're acting like the boss of us. Who gave you this kind of authority? So Daniel chapter 7, verse 9 through 10, and then we'll read 13 through 14. So Daniel, again, having this vision, this overwhelming, this kind of this picture of death and destruction that had come in after the garden. And now it just seems like it's overwhelming. And then there's this ray of hope. And he looks up and he says in verse 9, I kept looking until thrones were set up. Now, throne is always a picture of what? It's a picture of authority, right? And the ancient of days took his seat. Now, again, this is a vision. God is spirit. Does God really sit down? Does he need a literal throne? It's a picture of authority as a throne. This is called anthropomorphism, whether when we apply physical human things to God, God having hands, God having whatever, and you know, We know that God is spirit, Jesus said, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God the Father. That's the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days took a seat. His vesture was like white snow. The hair of his head was pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. That will get your attention. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court set, and the books were opened. Okay, now that, if you've ever done any drama or anything, that is setting the scene. I mean, now you got this picture, so you're not just by You know, we get a lot of pictures of Jesus and God and pastoral situations. No, this is a place of absolute authority, overwhelming authority, myriads upon myriads of created beings around this throne. Okay, so get the setting. And then something really odd happens, at least I'm sure from Daniel's perspective, He says this, I kept looking in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven, catch this, one like a son of man was coming. Now why would he say that? We've looked at this at various points because it's hard not to recognize because we come across this in the gospel so often. We've already come across the son of man a number of times uh, as we've gone through the gospel of Luke. Now what is happening here is phenomenal. And he's trying to get a picture. It's like, looks like a dude. Looks like a guy. Looks like a a, a human being. I I, I don't know what to say. It's like a man, but, okay. And he came up to the Ancient of Days. Now, remember the Ancient of Days. We just saw hair like pure wool and fire and flaming thrones and myriads upon myriads. So get the picture. I mean, this is the most grand stage. I mean, the tragedy that we saw the, over these last few weeks with, uh, you know, we think of big parades. So Kansas City wins the Super Bowl and they go back and then there's the shooting. And, you know, we get glimpses of overwhelming, you know, maybe a rock concert. That's why he's like, that guy's a rock star. Why? Because thousands of people come out and fill stadiums and all that. And or a million man march in D.C. or something is like, oh, now we got to pay attention to this because look, this is the scenario. There are just myriads upon myriads of created beings and the flames and thrones and all that is overwhelming. And then it seems so inappropriate given the context that some created being, some man would be making his way up to, to, to do anything. I mean, A created being should be down on the ground like, you know, falling on their face. And here's someone like a son of man coming up to the ancient of days. Is that even possible? No man can see the face of God and live, the Bible says in the book of Exodus. Who is this man, this created being? Who is this? It's like a son of man and he's coming up to the ancient of days. What's happening here? And he was presented before him. The son of man was presented before the ancient of days. Now catch this. And he was given, what? Dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue might serve him. Now, you know, Many of you know I've spent quite a bit of time in the Jewish community. I've spent a lot of time in Aspen. I've spent a lot of time in the Middle East and Israel. And of course, we have our partnership with Israel College of the Bible and Dr. Saref, and they've been here. And so I'm often in those places. And there is a sense in which the Old Testament is their book, and then kind of there's a sense in some people's minds that the New Testament is kind of the Gentiles' book, which is really a really an inadequate way to view the Bible. It's an integrated whole, as we've been seeing, and um, Oftentimes, the Old Testament was perceived as being the the kind of the Jewish people's book, and they've been the custodians of what we call the Old Testament or the Tanakh for many, many years. Many of our Jewish friends are secular now, may not even believe in God, but they have been given the task of being a light to the nations, and that is often overlooked. I, I often meet Jewish friends, and I said, how, in what way? Do you ever see yourself fulfilling the idea that there would be in any way a Jewish conduit or a light to the nations? And I, and I often ask, and and I just I I, I have so many Jewish friends. That if not Jesus, who? Who would who would have ever arisen in the history of the? I mean, some profound, amazing people from Einstein. You just go down the list of amazing, disproportionate, really, quite frankly, to the to their numbers. There's anywhere between 13 and 15 million Jewish people on the face of the planet. But it keeps talking about one of these, the seed of Abraham, in the line of David, over and over you get these pictures that point towards this and now one looking like a man being presented and given all dominion and all authority where all the nations are worshiping and bowing down before this one like the Son of Man. And my question to my Jewish friends is always the same, if not Jesus, who? If not Him, when? When will this happen? And many look, and many of my friends, they just look at me with just kind of an unclear look. I I don't don't even really know what you're talking about. Many of them don't even know these prophecies that every people and nation, and men of every language might serve Him. There's you really can't go into a nation anymore and not find a follower of Jesus. From people like that were serving the trees and the stars and the rocks and the stones and polytheistic or whoever, and you will find people who are bowing down before, well, I think this is exactly what Daniel is seeing, somebody that looks like a man. His dominion is everlasting. It's an everlasting dominion. And it will not pass away. Uh, Same thing we get in the Davidic covenant. This is a forever kingdom. We talked a lot about that when we were talking about Jesus entering the city on the back of a donkey. His kingdom, well, it won't pass away, and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. There has never been a leader among the Jews yet that their kingdom has not been destroyed. Except for one, and unless you understand that that kingdom has been a subversive entrance via the unseen realm rather than a seen realm. One day it will be seen by all, but right now there's an opportunity to enter it. It is among you. It is near the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God is near. You can enter into it. That kingdom is growing, and that kingdom is growing day by day. Now, we may feel in the West that we've somewhat marginalize the evangelicals and their that's a last bastion of people that you can really look down on and criticize and they look so we look so absurd to so many people and I understand that I do understand that but you do understand that the gospel is growing faster than it ever has uh, in continents like Africa even the last 80 years it used to be 3% now it's over 50% identify as uh, followers of Jesus as Christians and just because we see a diminished West because of our own materialism and our own, I don't know what, um, we, we think, well, we're the, we're the fine, well, we're just as absurd as they were during the time of Jesus. Who gives him the authority to say that? What kind, of, what kind of right do you have to say anything? So that spirit is alive and well, certainly is here in the Coachella Valley, but he still has dominion and all power and authority have been given to him, and so I'm glad I'm on his team and you can be on his team. It's as simple as believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. So those are incredible What is it about us? What is it about humanity? I had a I'm not gonna call this a vision. It was just a picture that developed in my mind. Uh, I guess I had a picture of it, so if you call well, it so I'm not trying to add any kind of mystical power of the Holy Spirit kind of thing here. I just I have to, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm usually teaching five or six hours a week on a lot of different things and as many stories as I can bring to bear or pictures that I can, that help us develop a picture of what we're talking about. And for some reason this week, it wasn't, again, I'm not claiming any supernatural uh, thing here other than I just had a picture of something that in my mind began to be what I called uh, the sea of perceived autonomy. Now, what would I mean by that? I just saw—I don't know—it's something. It was something similar to like the Salton Sea in some way, or something. I don't know. That's the nearest kind of sea. I mean, it was a big body of water, and uh, it—I remember seeing pictures of the Salton Sea. Maybe some of you know. I I know Dr. Parkinson's here. He was—he was around when I think that was. They used to, didn't they? Used to ski and stuff on the Salton Sea and things like that. It was a time where it was pretty kind of glorious place, and people were buying up lots all the way around the corners of the Salton Sea and. Now you see is just abandoned buildings and dead fish floating up on the water. And now they're even ta- talking, I've heard talk about maybe even making it a, a lithium factory of some sort that may come in and so I don't know and there's been projects to try to save it. It was never fresh water, it was just always kind of brought in and it just sat there. And it was kind of a, a not too dissimilar from the Dead Sea in Israel where things just couldn't live really vibrantly anymore. Uh, and uh, somehow it was this big sea And uh, it looks so inviting, at least in the old days, the Salton Sea. But any sea, you kind of look and it just looks so clear and clean and you kind of dip your toe in the sea of perceived autonomy. And I just saw people that were just kind of like, hey, well, you know, it's good up here on the shore, but it's really nice in here. And it's kind of of swimming around, you know, and a little, little hat on and just kind of doing a little bit of this. And hey, I'm fine out here. I don't need, right? I I'm pretty autonomous. I can swim, and I'm, I'm I can still get back to the shore, and then they climb back up on the shore, and then and they sneak back out. And hey, it's the water's fine out here. We're calling to people on the shore. I don't worry about all that stuff. And and, and in my and in my picture, it was like all the shore was a picture of, was kind of a kingdom. It was it was unseen, but it was a Jesus kind of kingdom. It's like I wouldn't go too far out there. I mean, you know, and it, but it feels so good. And then all of a sudden, we just keep swimming out there perceiving that we are autonomous and don't need you know God's solid foundation of the shore and we keep swimming then we go a little bit further out and further out and and it gets a little more murky out there but it's not a, a big deal and all of a sudden it just starts to get thicker and my picture was it was it was, it was a strange picture it was almost like mud or, or, or some kind of Quicksand or something. It was kind, of, and you kind of said, oh, "Well, I, but I'm, I'm okay here, but I kind of I'll go back a little bit further out." And then there was a something not too dissimilar from like a black hole or something called an event horizon. and If you know anything about a black hole, there's a certain thing, and beyond the certain thing, even light itself can't escape a black hole, and then it's just black, and everything just gets sucked in beyond the event horizon. And that feels like what happening was what is happening in our culture. People go so far out and then they begin to say things and they can't, they can't even hear anymore. They can't even hear from the shore. You know, Jesus said this all the time, if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, they can't even hear the shore anymore. Uh, it, it, they feel like, and there's just an event horizon and then it's just over. It's the only way I can make sense of what appears to be God's hardening of people's hearts or the allowance of Him hardening their hearts and yet our free will. And it's there's just a certain place where you just can't hear those crazy evangelicals yelling from the shore. It's not as safe as it looks. We are contingent beings. We are not autonomous. We don't live independent of the creation. We are utterly dependent on Him for life and breath. Back to Paul's conversation at the Areopagus. In Him, we live and breathe and move. So we have our will, our volitional will, and yet even our next breath is contingent upon the creator of the universe allowing us, giving us that next breath. But we swim, so hmm lackadaisically at first and somewhat rebellion. Some people jump in out of total rebellion, but sometimes it's just, and we swim a little further and we swim a little further and then we just get sucked right under and we can't see and we can't hear. Maybe you're watching this morning on television or something and you're just like, this this, this is insane. I can't, I don't even understand what this guy's talking about. I, I implore you, I implore you, Make your way back toward not religion, not Christianity, not what uh, those are all terms the person, the dominion, the authority, the power of the one who gave his life for you. Make your way toward the shore, even if you feel like you're just living your best life, it won't be that way long. Jesus is coming back. So, these are. This is some pretty grandiose claims we've looked at, right? We've looked at Paul and Peter and various people. So I wanna just start just start our journey into proof. Is there any proof for this? What would we, because we live in a world now that is all predicated on, it's gotta be science. You know, it's all about science. You know, you understand, sci- I love science. Many of you know that, I, I, I'm fascinated with it. I studied a lot of biology when I was in school, when I was at Rice. I, took some astrophysics. I, I, and it was, it was way, The math was way above my head, but the concepts were not. They were intriguing to me, and I still, I still love the scientific method and observation and, and you know, how, to, how do you get to a place? But you have to understand that most things in life that we would say, I'm scientific, cannot, will not ever be able to be brought into the scientific method. We are, we are, we rely on things that we'd be brought into the courtroom. Is there a scientific proof that Jesus lived? There's not scientific proof. There's evidentiary proof that Jesus lived, and that would be enough to make a strong case for something. But there's not we can't bring everything into a controlled environment in the laboratory and go through exhaustive testing and procedures to you know based on a hypothesis and eventually coming maybe eventually okay we're absolutely convinced this works over and over and we get to a physical law or something but people are asking for proof that could never be had you can't have you know you can't give me scientific evidence that George Washington lived or that Shakespeare lived or that anybody i mean it just doesn't fit the purposes of the scientific method So, don't just live in your little scientific world and say, I don't believe in that because it's not scientific. It's just a false way to view reality and and proof for anything. So, that's important to say before we get going here. But what are some of the manifest proofs? Well, first of all, there were signs and wonders. And... uh, just thinking, okay, I'm I am can do this in 15. Yes, let's just pray for Jeff that he can get to the. I just think this is so powerful. Now, this is this may seem like a little bit of an end around, but it's not. I could give you the verses where Jesus just performed signs and wonders. And we say, there it is. He performs signs and wonders, therefore it's proof. And then if you're a skeptic here or watching and you're a skeptic, you go, like, Yeah, well, you know, I mean, they claim all kinds of things about all kinds of people. And there's no scientific proof for it, therefore I don't believe this. But maybe this is, will push you towards a little bit more of a, a compelling answer that might form in your mind just by going down this road. Again, one of the great proofs, in my view, and I've said this from the beginning, it's why we spend so much time in the Old Testament and the New Testament, is that we're always looking for confirmation, proof, if you will, back to the prophets that were written hundreds of years in advance of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus did that about himself. When he called himself the son of man, he's referencing Daniel. I am the fulfillment of what Daniel saw. When he's he's healing, he's not just David Copperfield. He's not just going to get a nice little stay on the strip and so he doesn't have to travel anymore. This is not the point of what Jesus is doing. Jesus Very, the essence of his proof for his authority, for his right to teach in the temple and proclaim the gospel in the temple. Well, it's here, Matthew 11. Uh, This starts with John the Baptist, uh, his little midlife crisis that he's having here. He's in jail now. He's wondering if he put all his eggs in the wrong basket. Is Jesus the one? What does that mean? The one, the expected one meaning the one with all power and authority, the Messiah, the the line of David, the the king, that will be a light to the nations. Who is this guy? John the Baptist is asking. Give a guy a break. He's in jail. He laid down everything. He lived as a, essentially a homeless person out in the middle of the desert and eating locusts and honey and all kinds of it is a very ascetic lifestyle to usher in the coming of the one he thought was the one. And then he says this when Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. And when John, John the Baptist, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, the works of the anointed one, the works of the Messiah, he sent word by his disciples and said, are you the expected one? That we've been, that I've been telling everybody you were the guy. I, re- I was there at your baptism. I heard the voice. I, I was the one who looked up and said, behold, the Lamb of God. I, I didn't even understand what I was saying, Jesus. But I'm expecting you to come in and, and set all things Right? get these Romans off our back. I don't know what John was in his, I don't know is the fullness of his knowledge of who Jesus was going to be. He said, "Is are you the expected one? Ask Jesus this. You know, some of you may do that. You're asking that too. You may not have been expecting him, but you're asking the general question, which is, Jesus, are you, are you really the guy I should follow? I mean, this seems, I know a lot of hypocrites in Christianity and I've studied the history of the church or this or that and you've, you have all these stones in your road but at some point you need to push beyond all of that and you need to ask Jesus, do you have all this dominion and authority? Are you the creator? Or are you a teacher that I can pick and choose from? Asking, is he the expected one or, or should we look for somebody else? And Jesus smote him. no. Jesus, the loving, kind, compassionate, grace-filled Jesus said, will you go and report to John what you hear and see? And then he's going to quote Isaiah chapter 35. He's not just going to say, hey, I did all these miracles. (laughs) He's not going to do that. Here, let me do something else. And he reaches in. Oh, wrong thing. Bunny. Bunny. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's not showing off. He's walking into what had been said, whether they were aware of it or not, the activities of the expected one. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Now, is that authority? You know, we're going to ask before this little series, this little journey we're on, does that authority carry on to us today? I mean, that's a good question. I mean, the the body of Christ is divided on that. You know, some say, "No, that's over. We can't. People aren't being healed anymore." You know, some, "Yes, we still have this authority. We're going we're to look at that." Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. the The dead are raised. The poor have the gospel preached to them. Now that's pretty phenomenal, because that's what he was doing in the temple, preaching the gospel, and he'd already healed a lot of people. He just healed blind Bartimaeus on his way that we looked at when he was in Jericho. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Are you offended by Jesus or his followers? Maybe some of you. Are you offended by us? First of all, you could be offended by me because I'm, I'm not Jesus. I want to be like him, but in many ways I fall short but please, I beg you, do not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Do not throw Jesus out just because you've encountered offensive actions that seem to demote him in some way in your hierarchy of who you follow or give heed to. Please don't. Don't take offense at Jesus. Now, we're going to close with this, and it is so powerful. I, we could launch another 10-week study, and everybody's freaking out. Don't freak out. Isaiah 35, we're just going to read these seven verses. But if you realize this is written now, Isaiah's writing a good 100 years before the time of Daniel. But they're all seeing essentially facets of the same expected one who has all the authority and all the power and all the dominion and can do anything in the temple that he wants to anything. You can do the same in your life, but you have to give him access. Isaiah 35 is what Jesus is quoting in part, but I want to read the full context. So let's close this morning with this. Verse three, encourage the exhausted, strengthen the feeble, say to those people with an anxious heart, maybe you're here today and you just have, you're just anxiety ridden. Maybe something's happened. There's somebody, you know, I'm, you know, I've got precious friends. I got a thing last night from our good executive team member, Bob Thompson, his wife, Jones Clots, and she was in the hospital. And, you know, and that gave me, you know, a tendency to want to feel anxious or whatever. You know, maybe you're feeling that kind of anxiety for something or for somebody or for something that's going on in your life. And God's saying, look, Isaiah, you do this. Tell them, those with an anxious heart, to take courage and not to fear. Why? Behold, your God will come. Well, that's good. That's good. If you're on his team, that's good. If you're not, it's not great because he comes what? With vengeance. And the recompense of God will come. God's going to do away with these spiritual malevolent forces of wickedness in higher places, this unseen realm, these adversaries that bring death and disease and destruction and factions and strife and anarchy and chaos and all the garbage that you see that proliferates not only in our own city, in our own valley, in our own state, in our own nation, but around the world. Someday, God's going to come, and He will save you. You're anxious this morning? Listen to the words of Isaiah. And then, what will it look like when he does? The eyes of the blind will be open. That's exactly what Jesus is quoting When John is like, is he the guy or should we look for somebody else? And the ears of the deaf will be unstopped and the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. Whoa, Jesus is quoting that about himself. I thought this just said, God's gonna come. God's gonna save you. Exactly, you gotta realize that when you're talking about miracles, it's Jesus' claim to Isaiah 35 that says, well, I'm also deity in human flesh and I am the one who's going to do the saving around here. (laughs) Now, is that good news? And then all these metaphors emerge about water. Listen to it. The scorched land will become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. What is Jesus doing in the temple? That's my question in Luke 20. He's teaching and proclaiming the gospel out of his mouth rivers of living water to scorched and dry places. What authority do you have to do that, Jesus? You have no authority here as water is gushing out in perfect fulfillment of what Isaiah had seen 700 years before. I'm saving people. I'm not going to come with vengeance yet. I'm going to allow the vengeance to be poured out on me. I will come back and set all things right. And I will not come back as a baby in the manger. I will come back as a conquering king. I will come back just as Daniel had seen, and all nations will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus has, well, he's the boss of everything. (laughs) What authority do you have to be here? He doesn't smite him. He just quotes the Scripture. In the haunt of jackals, its resting place, grass becomes reeds and rushes. It's a picture of fruitfulness and growth and greenery. A highway will be there, a roadway. It's going to be called a highway of holiness, and unclean won't travel on it. Why? Why do the unclean not want to travel on this highway outside the sea of perceived autonomy? Because it's getting more quagmirey out here and I, uh, swimming's not as fun as it used to be and I'm having a hard time even hearing the voice calling from the, well, from the edge of the sea, from the solid ground, from the foundation and I can't even hear it anymore. How would I ever get on this highway of holiness? I'm unclean. I'm swimming in a dirty sea. I thought I was autonomous. I didn't realize I was a contingent being. Well, if you can still hear this message at all, we'll get in our little boat, row out there, do a little fishing jump into the net of the king of the universe. That's what we're called to do, to be as followers and ambassadors. We're kind of on the land and then we kind of go into the sea of autonomy. We're in the world and not of it, but we're in a boat. We're above it. We set our minds on things above. We don't get caught and pulled in to the event horizon where darkness overcomes. They weren't able to hear because they were... Their deeds were evil, John 3 says. They lived in darkness. But there will be a highway of holiness and, well, it's for him who walks that way. The fools will not wander on it. You can't be foolish and walk and get back to shore and walk on this, on, not on this highway. No lion will be there, nor vicious beast will go up on it. Those who will not be found there, but they're redeemed. Now, how do you get up on the shore? because we're not like those nasty people swimming in the sea of perceived autonomy. No. The ransomed and the redeemed, we've been bought back with the price Is the reason we're on the shore, not because we're goody-two-shoes and look down on the people that are out there, not recognizing their own contingent nature. We have been rescued, ransomed, redeemed, up on the shore, on the highway of holiness. And by the way, are we going to be joyful? Yes, joyful shouting design, Everlasting joy upon our heads, you better believe it. They will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. But those first steps into the sea of perceived autonomy, it's not so bad. Christians always trying to frighten us about our own we like swimming out here. We feel good out here. We well, this is how I feel. I I perceive that I'm doing well. This is you know, I and all of a sudden it just doesn't feel good anymore. Maybe that's you. Reach to the shore right? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for those who are here that have been living on the shore, that feel confident, that have everlasting joy and sorrow and sigh. Oh, it's just beautiful. The shoreline is beautiful. We're forced to go back into the sea using this metaphor and and rescue people who feel like they're drowning. Do you feel like you're drowning this morning? Just You can just say this to the Lord because he said it. Isaiah saw it. God will come and he will save you. You know, a walk with Jesus starts. Jesus, I'm living out here and I am a million miles from your plans. I've known this for years. Will you save me? And don't be surprised if a boat comes up. Just don't be surprised if somebody appears in your life. Maybe even watching this on YouTube or here this morning. Don't be surprised if Jesus doesn't show up in remarkable ways once you make that statement. Just tell him, say, Jesus, save me. Why? Because somehow I'm believing now in your dominion, in your authority, and your power. I've always kind of known it maybe or had a sense, but I never really saw it in this stark a term. I give my life to you, amen. That's a great prayer. We're gonna close with the same song this morning that I played last week because I think the words are so perfect for this. We'll, We'll move on from this song next week and close. I'm asking you if you would just to really take a moment, be contemplative, listen to the words. And then, if that's your cry to God, it's going to feel so good because trying to be a contingent being and trying to be a creator, step into his shoes, is taxing. This is liberating to realize that, well, it's Jesus with all authority.